Hi. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Calvin. I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today's topic is going to be, ooh, it's going to be about world growth and missions. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. So, yeah, what's been going on since then? So, how about we just jump, let's jump right into it. Let's, let's just, you know what I'm saying? I just jump into it. You know, I don't care if it's a shallow pool. I'm jumping headfirst into it, bud, right off the diving board. How about, how about a nest, nesty plunge instead? Can we do that instead? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, like, world missions in the Anglican context, Anglican tradition, how the Anglican communion itself has grown to be uh, statistically still counted the third largest communion on the planet. How did that happen? Uh, you know, we've talked a good bit about Christian history on the podcast here in the past. You know, for those who may have missed those, you know, the Anglican Church, like the church in England, goes back to the first century. You know, Joseph of Arimathea, legend says, was um, one of the first evangelists to bring the gospel, you know, to, to those people. And the people that were in the British Isles then, you know, you had the Romans there, the Roman Britons, but everybody else, they were pagan, pagan tribes, societies. Um, and we get those early missionaries, you know, like Patrick, Bridget, David, Cuthbert, Hilda, you know, a lot of these people that were there preaching the gospel, seeing the church established over those early centuries. And then we get that injection of Roman doctrine and polity with Augustine of Canterbury in 596-97. We get the the Reformation in the 1500s. It's a big deal. I mean, listen to this. Listen to this from 1549, Caleb. I'm, I'm all ears. I'm perked. My ears are perked. <laughs> all right. Here's what Cranmer wrote in 1549. He's talking about the need for liturgical revision, specifically a prayer book in the language of the people, not in Latin. He says... These many years past, this godly and decent order of the ancient fathers has been so altered, broken, and neglected by planting in uncertain stories, legends, responds, verses, vain repetitions, commemorations, and synodals, that commonly when any book of the Bible was begun, before three or four chapters were read out of it, all the rest were unread. So in this way, he says the book of Isaiah was begun in Advent, and the book of Genesis later. Now, I bring this up from 1549 because this is the first book of common prayer that's in English that's taking the practice of the ancient fathers. That's what, that's the first line I, I, I've cited there. We need to restore the church to the ancient form and faith, the practice, the doctrine of the fathers, which is what we get in Anglicanism in the prayer book. And so, you know, we find here uh, just in much more recent history, 2008 from GAFCON at the Jerusalem Declaration, this line, we, the participants in the Global Anglican Future Conference, have met in the land of Jesus' birth there in Jerusalem. We express our loyalty as disciples to the King of Kings and Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus. We joyfully embrace his command to proclaim the reality of his kingdom, which he first announced in this land. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of salvation, liberation, and transformation for all. So I'm not going to go into all these other documents, but simply to point out that here is this theme of evangelism, missions, theology, growth, spiritual development, from the first century to today that is now from those 
pagans who converted in the first century there in England spread around the world globally to this giant international communion that is more diverse than I think most of us understand, especially in Appalachia, because I want to say Appalachia is like 97.8% white. And when I say white, what I mean is uh, European of a particular kind of descent, like it doesn't have to be Irish, even though there's many Scotch-Irish, right, in Appalachia, but it could be English, could be uh, French, you know, Denmark, uh, Northern, like yeah. you've got these those particular people groups that are from that portion of Europe. That's the majority of us in Appalachia. Always has been. It would take a massive demographic shift and <laughs> migration of humanity to change that uh, like it did, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Most of us around here are Anglo in the Anglo-Saxon. I mean, or, or the, we're the Irish of the of, of Anglo, you know, in that sense. We don't know that the majority of the Anglican communion is international and that the largest provinces are in Africa. Average average Anglican person is a Nigerian woman who's 22 years old. And it is kind of weird to think because even our start, like, usually, because even, like, growing up in, like, uh, whatever, in Pentecostal church where it's, like, usually world mission, especially with AG, it's, like, world mission where it's, like, well, America is responsible for ministering to the world. And, like, that was kind of, like, more of a mindset. Uh, maybe that's not necessarily that AG believes that, but that was my mindset. Oh, that was like definitely, that. you catch that, yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's but it's funny because then it's like I had, when it comes to Anglicanism, it's like, no, you don't get, you don't understand. Africa is responsible for ministering Anglicanism to America. And it's like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. Like, we're the missions trip? Hold on. Right. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird. <laughs> I want to you know, it was, was it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a study came out said that the United States received more missionaries for the first time in its history than it had sent out. In the Anglican world, and this is one of the reasons for citing GAFCON in 2008, as the as the mainline Anglican body started to deviate more and more from scriptural and tradition, from scripture, tradition, and reason, and the proper assessment of those from those Reformation principles, it was the churches in Africa and other parts of the world, the Anglican Communion, that stepped in and provided the cover and the help for the uh, the faithful Orthodox belief system uh, and and for the people. To provide that cover, so, absolutely, yeah. And when you reckon, uh, you mentioned the Pentecostal Church, Pentecostal denominations, many of them. I know, for example, um, the Assemblies of God. If I remember my history correctly, and it's been twenty-three years, I think, since I read this one, uh, Philip J. Hogan, Philip Hogan, maybe it was J. Philip, I forget exactly. How, Hogan was their missions director for decades. Took the book from Roland Allen, who was an Anglican priest, mm-hmm. called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And he adapted this Anglican priest's theology and made their missions program and developed their missions program on the basis of Allen's theory and practicum from his work in world missions. So when you look at Roland Allen's, and he had another book called The Spontaneous Generation of the Church, where Allen's talking about the Holy Spirit already working in a people and raising up and creating this infrastructure, and we step in and we speak to that. And how do we help that and sustain that? And when you look at the the way world mission has developed and the key role the Anglican communion has played in that, there's a reason we don't talk about the Church of England well, we will, but and not we don't talk about the Church of England. We talk about the Anglican Communion, which is a much different thing. So even the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury, while he still retains, you know, his his historical prominence for for that 
work and role. We don't say he's not the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, you factor in what else is going on around the world. I think it's the the Diocese of Jos, like J-O-S in Nigeria. I don't know how many millions of people are in that. It's huge. It's gigantic. Uh, there's 18 million, more over 18 million Anglicans in Nigeria right now. I mean, just the, the, the sheer scope of this. The Anglican Church in Australia, and there's over 3 million, I think. So it's not numerically anywhere close to 18. Well, there's only 25 million people in Australia anyway. Um, over 3 million Anglicans in Australia, and the, the Anglican Church in Australia is the largest organization that provides housing for people. So, I mean, the sheer scope of that, you, you, you take that kind of work, you take the, the global missions work, you take the theological, you know, uh, hammerings that go back and forth, good and bad. I'm not trying to say it's all faithful to our formularies. That is a different topic. But please, if you're going to be part of the Anglican communion and you're listening to this, please abide by the formularies. Do, do that for the sake of everybody who's trying to. <laughs> don't, <Yeah. laughs> don't create any unnecessary conflict. There's lots of other groups you can go. I need to stop. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, let's go. Let's keep going. Let's keep going on topic. So I, I think, so I guess we're just basically going to go through the history first. Just yeah. Kind of, I mean, that's of like where, because we, we, we kind of already touched on that a little bit, but I guess we're going to hammer down more. Right. Yeah. We, I, I guess reiterate is yeah, the word did, I'm we for. talked, didn't, I think we did talk about, the colonization of one right. of these, right? We talked about even like how Anglicanism came to Africa. Yes, yeah. Well, after you get past the colonial period, right? Uh, well, it's still the colonies still exist, but that big push of British Armada that gets real popular in the 1600s and 1700s. Once that kind of recedes, and the British Empire basically exists, this is where the Anglican Communion starts to kick in because you've got the Church now internationally scattered abroad, but it's not. Like, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. The majority of Anglo-America, what's often called as the, the, the dominant ethnic majority. The ethnic majority, I guess, is the phrase, right? You, you, the words are changing so much, guys. My apologies oh, yeah. if I'm using terms that are like 20 years old in this because, you know, every six months they, we got new catchphrases. And, and every time you get a new catchphrase, it's a hot button for somebody. So my apologies if, if my statements are going to be hot buttons. That's not the intent I'm trying to describe. Yeah, I mean, right? I even got really mad when they decided to choose that the word irregular or irregardless is, an, is actually a word now. I got really upset by that. Okay. A few years ago. Gotcha. Because it used to not be a word, and then they threw it Th in there. Thank you for letting me know. I, I might add it back in my but, into my repertoire. Because I'm like, well, that's not a real word. I'm like, well, actually, it is. So. Yes. Okay. And that, and that just makes me mad. I don't. I think it's. I don't think it's fair. Like, is Pluto a planet? Who knows? It's. 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 It's right. ridiculous. I think. Okay. But so, there's. It's almost impossible to separate the 13 colonies, you know, from, in the United States, to separate that from England. Right. Even though there's the political separation that takes place, right? The American Revolution. But the influence of thought pattern and worldview is still present. Well, fast forward a couple centuries and you get to now this British Empire. Well, as the British Empire starts to recede, and this becomes especially what's taking place in the late 1800s, much more so into the early into the middle 1900s. I mean, it wasn't until 1996. I remember watching this on the news and seeing, reading the papers when Hong Kong left British control. Okay. So you, you get this receding. But. When that happens, and even in the height of the empire, those churches that exist around the world are not under the direct authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is not Roman Catholic light. 
It's much more Eastern Orthodox in polity here. So that it's called synodality. So the local jurisdiction, the local ordinary, the local bishop, he's the one who has authority over his churches. And so that, that gets organized on the diocesan level, then to the provincial level. And so a group of bishops, the leader amongst a group of bishops is an archbishop. So this starts to happen all over the world and then become their own distinct provinces. And the best example is to think of an armada, a fleet of ships. So you've got the Anglican communion as a fleet of ships sailing together willingly. And what ties them together is not that they all speak English, because one of the main principles of the Reformation, thus the 1549 prayer book, if the service is in a language that the people don't, under, don't understand, it's not a benefit to them. Key point being 1549, the issue was Latin, so right. it was made into English. One of the themes in prayer book history is that it gets translated into native dialects along with the Bible. So it's the commonality is these principles of the patristic faith of the church form and order and doctrine under these particular reformation rubrics, these, these reformation ideals that we need to understand the gospel, have our personal conversion in the life of the larger church as we're in joint mission together, preaching the word of God and celebrating the sacraments. All these things begin to spill out globally, but then tying these global threads together. So it's in the mid-1800s that the first, first Lambeth, L-A-M-B-E-T-H, Lambeth Conference, not Council. Councils make binding decisions. Conferences just get together and play, well, they talk. Hang <laughs> out, you know, <laughs> chill. Yeah. Uh, get some good serious vibes. conversations, but they, you know, and, and light ones, but it's a Lambeth Conference, meaning Lambeth being where the Archbishop of Canterbury lives, Lambeth Palace, Lambeth Conference. So the global primates... The global Anglican leaders from the different provinces come into Canterbury for that meeting. And how many were there? There were 600, about 600. For which, for the first? Yeah, the or, first one. Um, the first had 76 in 1867. 76, that was way off, yeah. So The most recent one is... One yeah, the most recent up. one was, yeah. So the Lambeth Conference is every 10 years. So they get, the, get together every 10 years and discuss what's going on and make some agreements to kind of continue to walk with each other, to stay in step with each other. And you see that going on so that now, uh, depending on who you ask, I think there's something like 41 to 42 different provinces that comprise the Anglican communion right now, which is about 85 million people. 80% of them, if I understand the statistics correctly, they haven't changed too much. 80% are people who believe in the dynamic gifts of the spirit, personal conversion, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, you know, it's not, it, it's a, it's supposed to be biblically robust, and, and we see that in a lot of places in the communion. For as much as we see certain weaknesses and deficiencies, we want to emphasize the gospel proclamation, and then how do we keep, teach and catechize to help when other parts of the communion are weak? That whole imagery of the body. Recognizing, even as I say that, that the Anglican communion is part of of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So if you jump on the Anglican communion website, you're going to find a whole lot of information about statistics and where the communion is and where the provinces are and a whole a whole set of links and documents on joint statements, ecumenical statements with the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Methodists, certain Pentecostal groups. This attempt to build legitimate unity and not just the false kind. Lambeth Conference 1867 and the last one was in 2008, 
uh, because of the departure from biblical authority that began to take place, um, the formation of GAFCON happens, the Global Anglican Futures Conference that I just read from that a few minutes ago as well. That is now representative of, if I understand correctly, again, this stuff is like happening in real time, so things could be changing, but GAFCON represents two-thirds of global Anglicans. So it's a structure, a system within the global communion that's contending for biblical orthodoxy and joint mission in preaching the gospel together. Put it, uh, to put it this way, the old saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire, is true as it relates to the Anglican communion. The sun never sets on it. It's global. Okay. So that's kind of more the, I guess, the world growth aspect, seeing how that's growing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the church is growing so fast in certain parts of Africa, they can't keep up with it. They can't ordain enough people to to lead those churches that are being planted. It's 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 very very powerful, very incredible. Yeah, and I think especially when you think of the growth, world growth, I think even just relate back to even to like growth within locally. You know, obviously the world growth is the observance of everything in it. Like, but if you look at it specifically and the place where it's growing at, like even locally. One of the biggest things, and especially that I really appreciate about what we do here, is the fact of you can't do it really too fast. And that's kind of we like it can be spread out, but like when you want to build up, you have to establish those roots. And I think that's right. one of the principles you have to. I don't know if it's really said, but it's kind of like yeah, of course this is how because it's only really the only way to do this. Because when you start to look through history and tradition, that takes time and that takes teaching. Yeah, and so that's that's one of the bigger things because. It's almost like that. It was like a weed or something. It's like a mile a minute, or whatever. Or never mind. Wait, Bam, I, not bamboo. Wh- what are you talking about? I'm trying. Uh, whatever. But it's like the whole point I'm trying to say. I, sorry for that terrible <laughs> analogy. But the whole point I'm trying to say is the fact of like it just it's working and it's getting deep rooted and it's growing, but it just takes a little bit, you know. Yes. Yeah. And so that's why. But it's steadfast, and that's the biggest thing that we focus. And I, especially when you look at Anglicanism, when you look at world growth, you can see it's like. Well, I don't know. It's not because it's not the hip thing, you know. It's not like t- it's not fast spreading. It's slow, but it's strong and it's steady. So that way, when things start to go crazy, you know, it's gonna stay there. It's gonna be steadfast. I'd say rock steady. Yeah. Part of uh, you, you spoke about um, Hogan from the Assemblies of God, and one of the key concepts he took out of it was the idea of intent indigenous churches. Yes. That was a very big, I think the most notable thing to bring out of his experiences and how that impacted them. From Roland um, Allen, you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I see a lot within the Anglican communion. And what I, what I think is really interesting is the dichotomy between creating indigenous churches or churches that are made up of the people there. Yeah. So the goal is when you are planting a church or you're planting an organization in a country, your goal is not to always lord over it as the planter. Right. The goal right. is to ultimately take your hand off of it and it will live and sustain itself. Yes. Like that's the ultimate goal. But what's really interesting to me is that there are still Anglican distinctives even without the outward. Look at Africa, for example. Yeah. Right. You see the Anglican distinctives, even though it's not a, a bunch of Europeans running it, but you still see the Anglican distinctives. And I think it's important to, to note that. And I think that's really cool because you'll st- still see, like, even though you don't understand the language, you can step into a service and know what is happening, even though I don't speak their language. Right. Because there are, there's a commonality that runs be- between everything. And when you start looking even at just Anglicanism at its core, it's because we did not make this up. Right. 
we merely point to the beginning. So they may point back to England, you know, oh, that's where, you know, they came from Anglicanism, like original, however, but we're going to be like, look at the beginning. This is how it was. And so it's really just a continuation of what was. And you mm-hmm. can see that um, very much so in from what they wear to what they do in their services, mm-hmm. because it's just a continuation of what was. Um, I, I think that's so cool. I, yeah. I don't know. I just think that's so yeah. amazing because they see that theme because even though a lot of these countries have said, I don't want to be under your rule. Right. Like culturally speaking, I do not want to be European. I don't want to be American. We are our country. We are what we are. And this is our identity as a country. And so they've made that. But what do you still see? Anglicanism growing because they've, it's, it's very clear that these things that we do are not because we're of European descent, right. but because we are receiving this from the beginning. Right. It's the apostolic succession on display. So we're receiving from the early fathers, holding that and passing it on. So the idea in church planting and missions is not to go in and recreate conclaves of Western colonialism. That's not the idea. It's to go and see and to through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments and discipleship, people learning the word of God. And as they learn that at the feet of the fathers like we have, that impacts and shapes their own culture so that the, the, the prevenient grace that was there is now working redemptively, healing and restoring, you know, so we don't go do missions because all of a sudden we're going to change a, a political climate somewhere or that's not what's going on. It's to go and to proclaim Christ and to watch what Christ does as he transforms the hearts of those people who respond to him. That's exactly what's in the parable of the sower. And when you look at the encompassing history of the church in England with the development, you know, from to the development of the communion, right? The first century to say the 1500s, the 1600s, when it starts to go global as globalism was just beginning to be understood. All of that, the, the development of the Reformation and then the, the First Great Awakening and then the Oxford Movement and then the Charismatic Renewal. You look, look at all of those things, good, bad, and ugly, but look at all of those and watch how that impacts the global communion, creating and sustaining and strengthening and sometimes causing division because it's got to be more scriptural. Once those foreign powers, quote, are gone and the gospel is there, we're looking at something to praise the Lord for. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, absolutely. Because it is, it is that mindset. Of, it's like, again, when you look through church history and you realize that it's not just 200 years old, it goes back quite a bit. Yep. You'll find that, it, it, and, that's, and that's, I think you hit the nail on the head there with that one, where it's like, this church is just going to exist and we're going to still continue to exist. Whatever leadership is there, even, especially because there's a lot of things politically happening right now. Yes. You know, of course. Right. But, I mean, here's the thing everybody dies, you know? So there's going to be a point where it's like, well, you can go off and you can exist. You can do what you want now, but it's not going to last forever. And it's like, we're going to be steadfast. And then when everything falls apart, we're still steadfast. And that's kind of the main thing. I know I keep saying that word over and over again, but I I think it's really important to to focus on that because I think with that, it brings hope because your hope shouldn't be in the fact of how fast you're spreading. Your hope shouldn't be really in the fact of like, you know, all the numbers you can get. It's be how consistent you are. Yeah. And consistency is key, you know. Well, one of the key things, since you mentioned key and consistency, look at the way that mission is done. So we talked about the indigenous principle, but you've also got a paradigm in Anglican church planting and development that's very important that is a recognition that what if there's already a Christian presence 
an established Christian presence, especially if it's a Christian presence with apostolic origin like the Orthodox churches. Right. Anglican missionaries did not go in and create a separate church down the street to contend with those people. In many cases, we see this in certain parts of the uh, the remnants of the, the Greek Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and where the Orthodox Church was strong. They went in, they befriended those leaders, they worked together, and then at some point, for and the reasons vary, they deemed it necessary to create another congregation and had that blessing from the existing church structures that were already there. Uh, in some cases, it was because the the those those Orthodox churches had difficulties evangelizing certain Muslim communities in some of these places because of the Ottomans and all that history from you know if you guys know your world history. Well, who who can speak into that and who can set that up? So look at the church in Alexandria, the Anglican churches in Alexandria, North Africa, those parts of the of the Middle East. You'll see that kind of relationship that was built. Uh, take into consideration. Um, the, the pioneering missions in certain portions of Africa, how many times the Anglican missionaries were martyred, the priests and bishops were killed in conjunction with their Roman Catholic counterparts while they were there to get together in mission, like side by side, they were doing that. Even Pope Francis, when he was still the cardinal down in South America, uh, Bergoglio in, in um, Argentina, in Buenos Aires, he would send his he would send the Roman Catholics to the Anglican churches to receive the Eucharist out in certain parts of the Amazon, as I understand it, in other parts of South America. If there was no Roman mission, he'd say, "Go to the Anglicans for the Eucharist." That says something about ecumenical ties. I mean, right. uh, you know, you look at some of those positive things that are going on. You can't build unity amongst the churches and the historic churches, communions, if you're not intentional. So as much as I would have rather seen a different kind of statement released from the Pope, the Patriarch of Constantinople, and the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, about two weeks ago, it was about climate change, I'd rather they talk about Jesus, like calling all men to repent. <laughs> uh, right. But at least they're putting out a joint statement. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Right. You know, <laughs> We're getting there. That, that, and it, it's, it is. It's, it's goofy. It's the whole, but it's one, it's serious because these kinds of things haven't been done in Christian history. In over a thousand years, so all of that is a credit to, and uh, you know, the way the churches are coming together. But look at the Anglican approach to mission. Even as we've planted this congregation here, I've been I've been intentional in telling people, look, you're if you're already plugged into a local church, you stay there. If you feel the Lord is telling you that you're supposed to be a part of this one, well, then you talk to your pastor and see if that 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 leader agrees with you, right? You, I'm like, and I'm, I'm not going to go into all those details, but to say, like, this was not, let's go in and steal people from a congregation. Right. Right? Because some ch- new churches do that. Nor is it to go in t- and contend with existing gospel legacy. Heresy is a different thing, especially egregious. Heresy is like bad math. Yeah. Two, two plus two equals five. What? No, four. <laughs> four. <laughs> but five is closer than ten. Right. Right? And so heresy is like bad math. The worse the heresy, the worse the effect. Okay? So you got to prioritize that. That's a different podcast. But yeah. it was not to go in and disrupt, but to go in and join the choir that's singing, so to speak. So we have, thank the Lord, good fellowship with our, our Roman Catholic uh, friends. You know, the Roman Catholic Church here this year let me use some of their vestments for our Ascension Day service. I don't have a, I don't have a cope. Not yet. 
<laughs> I don't even know what a cope is. <laughs> but that kind of stuff is very fitting for Ascension Day. I mean, it's, yeah. it, 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 it speaks to the uh, royalness of Jesus's, you know, reign. Um, and then connections with the other other pastors, Baptists, uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals. All that's good. That's part of Anglican mission. We don't go in as the church. We go in as part of the church to strengthen and solidify the gospel ministry that's present to call our our friends in the apostolic succession and other venues, hey, let's let's strengthen you in gospel ministry. Let's do let's be what we can and, and aid to you there. And to those who have gospel ministry but they're missing certain forms of the liturgy, let's let's pull you into completion there. Let let's be a good resource for you. And then globally, the pioneering missions. Right. Which is our ultimate objective is to plant churches all across the Appalachia. Every hill and every holler. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which, by the way, Caleb, <laughs> if nobody knows, and I hope they should know this, I would love to see, and I'm praying, and, and we're looking how we can do this, how do we in the next 30 years plant basically 110 to 111 churches in the state of West Virginia? We've got 55 counties in the state. How do we put two churches or missions or prayer ministries? If somebody's listening to this right now and they're in West Virginia and they want to start an evening prayer service and they want us to come out, want me to come out, once a month to celebrate communion with them, we'll do it. Like, this is what we want to do. We want to see spirit-filled, dynamic, on-fire groups of people. Whether they grow into giant churches or not, it's not what we're looking for. Right. We want to throw out seeds in the way that the sower throws out seeds. So you find a guy or a gal who wants to be a mission leader like this with, um, you know, discipling and evangelizing and encouraging people. Hey, give us a call. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to preach the gospel around the world. We want to do it in Appalachia. And I think that's one of the benefits of Anglicanism, especially is because it is that mindset where it's we there is strength and unity. Yes. So if there's resources out there, there's a church that exists, but they may do things differently. The whole point is to, again, it's like if you're in that congregation, like don't just leave. Like be the change you want to see in the world, you know? Yeah. Not to yeah. sit there and quote something you'd see maybe on a poster. Like in an I was gonna say that's like that. a poster in like a, a little like a teenage girl's bedroom. Yeah, be the change you want. But it, it's got we got some truth in there. But the whole point is to sit there and start asking questions like this. It's when we start thinking, we look back in our history. So that's what I mean. That would be the best thing to do is go work through your leadership and be like, why are we not doing this this way? And see what the answers are. Because a lot of time, because the biggest thing is like even for us, like it was stuff that we didn't know. Like yeah. no one no. It's hard to ask a question for things that you don't even know to ask. Like, you know, right. it's that situation. Like, how am I going to... I can't. I can't know until those questions start getting asked. And the whole point of even, even like what we do here, it's to get these questions rolling and get it going. Right. It's like, well, why aren't we doing this way? Like, right. It's like, well, I've never thought of that before. And I think that's very helpful, especially in America today, where we start to have... We have churches, but we have things that are going on that many necessarily aren't uh, scriptural or they're not uh, historically correct. Right. And start asking those questions to get the ball rolling. And I think that brings up a a question that a lot of times when people will bring a question to us as Anglicans, and they're like, well, why do you guys do dot, 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 dot? Why do you wear that? Why do you do that? Why do you, like, why is your service structured like that? And we the, the flip question, I'd say 95% of the time is, hold up. The question is not why do we do this, but why did you stop? Yeah. Right. That's right. So this is a great spot here to, to contrast things that are complementary and not contradictory because there's there's tension that shouldn't exist between liturgy and mission. 
there's tension that exists there that should not. Right. The liturgy is the the godly theater. I don't want to sound I'm not profaning the liturgy at all, but there's majesty and beauty and elegance in the liturgy, even if it's underneath a tree and flip flops. Okay? There's a form in the liturgy that's eternal. And the bigger the churches get and the more uh, more rich, you know, the more ornate they become, that's to reflect that liturgy. The, the, the majestic Gothic structures of the Anglican world and, and, and centuries past was to convey how in, eternally incredible and impactful Christ becoming present in the Eucharist and the proclamation of the word was that you have to build that. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you preach the gospel with architecture? Right? right. Liturgy is part of this. And this has been set against mission. So you get this debate and you get this debate about finances. We shouldn't spend that money on building. We should spend it on missions. And then you'll get, we shouldn't spend that money on outreach. We should spend it upon new gold chalices. They're not at odds. When we understand that we're formed by Christ in the liturgy because we're, we are in liturgy caught up into that eternal dance amongst the persons of the Trinity, the perichoresis. Liturgy catches us up into that. As Anglicans, we this is the apostolic succession, the liturgy, right? The divine service. We are from there, what is the post-communion prayer? Send us out, out to do the work. into the world to do the work that you have given us to do. It's in a full, robust liturgical celebration that we are transfigured by Christ to go out as voices and thunderings and lightnings from the throne Revelation 4, to call the world to repentance, fellowship with God, by being partnered with the church. That's in 1 John 1. So these things aren't at odds, they're together. So when you get right, good, it, it is right and good, right? That's in our... Yeah. Yeah. To celebrate this liturgy properly, the divine service, the and then to engage in mission comprehensively. We, we are going to do Matthew 25 kinds of things. We're going to clothe... The, the naked and feed the hungry and give drinks to the thirsty. We're, we're going to visit the people who are downcast. We're going to do those things by telling them about Jesus. Right. Put them together. This is Anglican mission. Why would we want something less? When we see that time itself is caught up and redeemed in the gospel, like uh, you mentioned, why do we, why not, or why not do something? Yeah. Think about the church calendar. Why do you guys have a calendar? Why is there a church calendar? No, wait. The whole idea of a religious calendar started in the book of Leviticus. Actually, Genesis 1. Yep. It was evening and it was morning. It was the first day. Right. God created the calendar and he created the festivals in the calendar and the fasts in the calendar. The church has just preserved it. But we celebrate it and observe it as a gospel thing, reminding us of the communion of the saints and the work of Christ. We could go on and on about these these, yeah. these things, but I think if we can we can take things that are presented as enemies and see that sacramental mission or mission sacraments, right? <laughs> However you want to put those together, that's key to not just Anglican mission, but to mission itself. What the church is supposed to be doing in her daily work, and I think it's very important when we start talking about the liturgy. It's I always think of the phrase "on earth as it is in heaven." Yeah, because even if you go look at Moses, why did he build a tabernacle like that? Because God right. hit him with the copy and paste PDF, you know. No. You know, Caleb. I, you know, that's. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. The past couple of days, I've been thinking about what it would be like if I wrote a book on the philosophy of Moses or something. Be, and here's what I mean: Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, 
right? And then you get all the, those big Greek thinkers, and they're talking about forms and metaphysics and how is something an idea and uh, what is Aristotle's um, heliocentric morphology or something? Man, I can't remember. I have to look it back up. But all of these things, they, like transubstantiation, they usually all involve like the heavens being involved in every. Yeah, sense. yeah. There's this metaphysical reality yeah. to things, and people say, "Well, you can't be Neoplatonic when you read the Bible." There's no such thing as a disembodied existence. Well, wait a second. What what is Moses giving us in he's, the tabernacle? He's literally just God told him, "This is literally how we're doing it in heaven. Right. You guys need to do that here. Build what you see." Right? He's in the yeah. mountain, on the mountain in heaven, seeing it. He builds it. What is the liturgy but the reenactment of all of those principles from that that Christ fulfills on the cross and then real makes real for us when he enters into heaven at the ascension? That's what we're that's what the liturgy yeah. is. Why? Why would we change any of that? Unless it's superstition and whatnot. Vain repetitions and as fifteen forty nine said. And and it sounds weird, but the it's like, well, what does that have to do with missions? And it's like, well, the connection is this, is because you're not gonna have this situation where you start clothing, you know, the naked or you start feeding the hungry unless you have these things that are representative of Christ until Christ is there with you in that missions and that what do you think is going to be causing you to do those things what what is it going to what's going to inspire within you when you see these things going on in your community yeah. it's the love of Christ in your life causing you to say I need to do something about that because that's not right this needs to be fixed right and who's going to give you the ability who's going to give you the strength it's going to be there so that's why it's a copy and paste because we need to move out in that way where it's how am I trying to say this you, but it's that's the whole point of the missions. It's because we need to spread out the good news. That's why we're doing it. It's because that's how we're how you're going to have that heaven on earth. How are you going to have that peaceful existence? It's not without you know Christ. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And so that's the whole reason. Even the whole reason behind missions is because of the fact that the world needs Jesus. You know, it's like why why are we kind of like you know a missions trip from Africa? Africa is like y'all need Jesus. You know, right. kind of like that. There, there, there's there's two big things about missions that I want to bring up at this point. One is medical missions. Uh, where you go care for, for the uh, people that are sick, but also what you just mentioned about caring for the poor um, and how intertwined these two things are. I'll use the first missionary I'll use is not Anglican. She's Roman Catholic. That's Mother Teresa. Who, what compels someone to care for people who are so absolutely poor and destitute other than the love of Christ? And when she was asked why she did it, she said, because she saw Christ in those people. That's Matthew 25. I know that there is an entire class of people in India today that um, I can't think of the name. Uh, K.P. Yohanan's folks were over there because he's a bishop now in the Anglican Communion. And I want to say they're, they've got 4,000 churches, 4 million. My numbers are way off because I didn't look this up. Um, but we have a priest that comes up here to, in, to our church here, ministers occasionally for us. Um, he's been invited to go over there and to teach these people liturgy. But this class of people are untouchables. But the number of churches that have been planted amongst these people that are liturgical, sacramental mission churches, it's astounding. Second person I'll bring up is um, Constance and, her, and then her companions. They're called the Martyrs of Memphis. So in the late 1800s, there was a case of, uh, I think it was yellow fever. There was a particular uh, sickness that was sweeping through Memphis, and there were these Anglican nuns that were there, Constance and her companions, who stayed and cared for these people and then died as a result of getting sick by caring for the sick. And she is commemorated on our calendar because of that martyrdom that she endured, laying her life down to care for people who needed it. You cannot separate. That takes like mission and sacrifice. Right. I mean, 
the sacrifice of Christ once for all upon the cross made present in the Eucharist by the power of the Holy Spirit transfigures us to go and be his body in the world around us. And God has a specific calling for each one of us in that sphere, whether it's Teresa, Constance, or, you know, you, you pick it, right? So, I mean, this is, this is what the Lord does in us as a means of being salt and light in the world. And that's always death and resurrection. And I think an, another central point we kind of have head on and of just Anglican mission is the Eucharist. Yes. How important that is. And so philosophically, when you really start to look at it, it's like, well, how do we then accomplish evangelism? Where does it happen? Where do we accomplish discipleship and uh, slash um, you know, catechesis? Like, where, where does this happen? And a, a big thread that I see that I really like agree with really resounds with me. It's like the fact that the church, like that, that's where you can bring people to mm-hmm. if, if they need to know Jesus, if they don't know Jesus, then you can bring them to the church because what's, you know, what's right there, the Eucharist, you know, like there's so many, I think that's, that's a very big difference. And so the, the idea and even the metric of success is different than, Hey, let's just go out give them a bowl of rice and say, Hey, um, say you want to, you know, make Jesus your personal savior. All right, cool. Like that's very different. We do a radical disservice to call people to Jesus as savior and not teach them that he has to be their Lord. And the process of proto catechism, which is basically meeting people who know nothing about the Lord and building relationship with them and, and taking the time to have that conversation with them. Our Anglican catechism, our, our prayer book is built in that historic continuity that two things presupposes conversions from paganism that happens after 1662, the baptism for those of riper years where the church early church recognized there's a three year process here for, for the guy on the street to go from not knowing Christ being baptized. It takes about three years. And then the second stage is Christendom. How do you evangelize people who are baptized as infants? So you've got pre-Christendom and Christendom influences in the prayer book. How do we appropriate that in a post-Christian world where we live? So it's proto-catechism and then it's catechism. You, you have to know what is the ten, what are the Ten Commandments? What is the Lord's Prayer? Because you, you cited, you just quoted it, on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. How would you even know that's what the liturgy is unless you're praying that prayer? If you are regularly praying that prayer on earth as it is in heaven, are you still praying the same way anymore? Or are you praying to be escaped, to get escape? And then thirdly, you need the Apostles' Creed. What is the church always taught? What is the synthesis? What is the the rule, the canon of faith, as the fathers called it, but that creed? Put those things together, and if that's your basis for baptism, you're not— if you teach the Ten Commandments— you teach them as they've been fulfilled by Christ in the gospel. And that's part of that, you know, the emphasis in, in preparing people. You teach them that when they get baptized, they're going to come to church on Sunday because the, the commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Right. You're not going to be going to try to, to find them to come to church because they were actually instructed and then decided, yes, this is true. I believe it. I need the grace from God. I'm going to repent as opposed to here's your, your Chick-fil-A sandwich. I love Chick-fil-A. Here's your Chick-fil-A sandwich, <laughs> and why don't you give your life to Jesus so you can have a better life? He's got great plans for you, because before you were born, he knew you, and he's got such a wonderful plan for your life. That is not gospel presentation, but that's what's been going on now for decades, so it's hard to convince people who did receive that chicken sandwich and therefore believe they received eternal life that now they're Christians. 
So we have the missions in the pioneering sense, but then we've got missions as in, no, we need to recatechize because a lot of people think they're walking with God, but somehow they're like those Israelites in the Old Covenant who are all through the city of Jerusalem for the festivals, but they're not keeping the festival nor the daily commandments of Moses. So we're in a very particular time in history, and praise the Lord that he's given us these resources. May, we, may he give us grace to stand with the church, you know, and to receive from the church as much as we need it. Yeah, and I think all through those categories you talked about, it, you know, it is unique because we're, we really are seeing all three of those categories, different categories happening at the same time on yes. planet Earth. Yeah. Because there are unreached people groups. In Appalachia, we got the same three things going on. Oh, 100%. It's, it's, it's truly, it's, it's intriguing, like just to see where we are as a culture. Yeah. I almost wonder, and this would be something if I was going to do a PhD in missions work, I almost wonder if there is no, like, what is town square? Where's the, where's the center of town nowadays? Because the center of town in the history was like where the wells were, right? So, or the city gates, you know, you had those two places to go to find out what was going on. And that's where the ideas were shared. You jump forward in history, it's the pub. Like a lot of people don't know, especially our friends in Appalachia, don't know that the Reformation basically got started in some pubs <laughs> as they were discussing theological topics. You can't do that in a pub. Listen, some great outreach can happen. That's a different, that's it's mission strategies there. Mission um, strategies. <laughs> but uh, it, it was pubs. You know, then you come forward and you get, the church in the middle of town, you get all this stuff, right? You see the industrialism changes the scope, the city, the cityscape changes, you know, so it's not the church spires anymore. It's the economic towers, but where's the city of, where's the center of town? Where, where's the center now for community? How's that happening? Because it's not local family. It's not nuclear families. It's not extended families. It's not churches. It's not schools. It's not universities. Like there is no center anymore. So the church, and for the era, the epoch that we're in, has to create that center and to understand that there's all these other splintering things that are constantly vying to be that, but it can't provide for it because it's not comprehensive enough. So I think those are things to really chew through and think about. How do we do that without a town, without a center of influence? Well, the church has got to step into that gap, and we have to do it on purpose. With compassion, with love, right. with generosity, not with heavy-handed um, forced legislation. And I think it it's like one of those things where it's the misunderstandings of freedom, where it's like, if in a world you can truly do whatever you want and whatever you truly desire, that is chaos. Yeah. So it's not freedom because then you don't feel safe or you don't feel free if you walk down the street and someone can just take you out, you know? Right. It's stuff like that. So the church's responsibility is to actually set up those rules and act to create that structure so that way freedom can actually truly exist, which it's, it's a weird concept because it's like in order for it to be, it, it isn't, but that is kind of what you see nowadays. There's a lot of chaos going on because people always want to innovate things. They always want to try to make sure like people are all oh, people's voices can be heard. But you know, a lot of times you don't want to sit there and say, well, that voice is wrong and it doesn't really work, but the church kind of has to step in that way. And that's where you usually get a lot of. Uh, I think a lot of hate for the church because it's like, what do you mean you, you're telling me I can't live my life this way? It's like, you could live your life that way. It's just not a good way to live it and it's going to cause you nothing more than heartache. Yeah. And it's hard to get that message across and express it like that. It's like, God doesn't sit there and tell you all these rules. He didn't drop down the Ten Commandments just because he's like, yeah, I want you to do this. It's because, no, this is the, the right way to live life. This is going to give you the best way to live life. If everybody actually in America followed the Ten Commandments, how different would the world be? It would be 
fruitful. It would actually be everything would be crazy. Right. Well, not crazy, but like crazy, like as in hard to imagine, because you wouldn't have like violence. You wouldn't have fear. You would have so much more freedom in that. And it's yeah. kind of hard to, but it, it, that kind of kicks off into the missions of the, at least the mindset of like for people who are against it, or at least against the church. It's like we're not trying to sit there and boss you around. It's just like these are the observances of life and what is actually good. And if you follow these things, you will have a better life. And it's like, nah, man, I'm gonna do with whatever I think or I feel like. Well, good luck, bud. Have fun. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. And I think the other thing you you spoke of was uh, comprehensive. And I, I have never seen a more comprehensive like sections of like just literature than the prayer book because it includes everything even like think about during the litany yeah i mean you're you go from praying for people who are learning and building their community to women who are like bearing children to Mm -hmm. uh your your military you know i got it's just it's it's so it's comprehensive but i think that is um just a summary of the things that are included within the liturgy and what liturgy includes. So a lot of times we think it's like, oh, that's just for a church, but no, hold up. Like this speaks to every aspect of our life. Like this is so important. I believe one of the phrases uh, you use, um, what is it? It's a hatch, match, and dispatch. Yes. Yes. Hatch, match, (laughs) dispatch. And so I think that's, when I look at Anglican mission, that's what I see, how comprehensive it is. And we're not just trying to give you something to do on a Sunday morning. Right. We're like, hey, this, when you walk in the traditions of the church, this will completely change your life. It'll change the way that you raise children. Yes. It'll change the way that you, you you'll find have a children. mate. Yes, you'll have children. You'll have them <laughs> and you'll raise orphans. Mm-hmm. It goes to the culture of life. Uh, you mentioned the litany and praying for, for those who are in childbirth and those who, who can't. And we pray for both in the litany. The Hebrew word birth, the Hebrew word for birth and build is the same. So it's emphasizing the feminine nature of birthing as the building of a nation. And when we have a culture of life, we honor and properly educate that feminine role of birthing and building the nation, right? You, you need motherhood. The church is our mother, you pick up these resonances through the regular celebration of the Eucharist and the, 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 the liturgy, liturgy of the church. You pick these things up. So even if you never articulate them, if you are intentionally walking in step with the church as she has walked with the, in, in the prayer books, the key there, you will develop a culture of life, whether you're providing for the widows, providing for the orphans, reaching out in missions to people who've never heard the eternal gospel. It is that comprehensive nature. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and that's what I think really that merit, the comprehensive nature married with the indigenous philosophy that like, I'm going to make an indigenous church those two put together is is why Anglican mission has been so effective and obvi- I mean I'm not, not to discredit the sacraments that's that's not what I'm doing but I would consider that the, the comprehensive but I, I look at those two things and I see how they affect like just mission philosophy and practices and it, it, it that's why I think you look at these different cult- and it's growing so quickly mm-hmm it's because it's it's comprehensive. I'm not and I, I'm not just saying, "Hey, do this and you can escape from your pain." It's saying that the gospel is is for here and for now and for every aspect of your life. Right. You mean ideas of like some mindsets might be where oh, the indigenous culture where it's like, 
well, I don't know if they really buy the whole like you know traditional thing and everything. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, look, if you look at indigenous culture, it's filled with traditions. It's filled with like all Absolutely. these different things. And I think that helps with the carryover. Or it's like, well, this is the way this is. Whereas in America, I think you find a lot more that's kind of more going on where it's the abandoning of traditions, where right. they want to be like, what's the new hip thing? And that kind of really, I think that's a for that's something that needs to be eventually a, will be adjusted in America, hopefully, where it's like you need to have some sort of like stand still even like we somewhat understand it because like usually you'll watch a fast and furious movie and you'll keep seeing, hearing them say family or something like that or like at least there's some sort of staple or something okay. there gotcha. but but i think that's what it is because then you because you also if you look at the american culture you sit there and you view it what do you see you see divorce you see different things like that where it's the breaking of right like these things because now not, if nothing means anything if we're all living in existentialism then there's no right and it just becomes chaos yes but Again, that's where the missions kicks in, where it's supposed to be the structure, and it's supposed to help build on. It's like, no, this is something that's Israel. Be aware of it. Right. And it's like, even with the Great Litany, I always find myself, when I'm reading through it, is that I'll be praying or I'll be thinking about things to pray, but then also it'll mention something like, I forgot about that. Where it's like, yeah. Because it yeah. is mentioning everything. It really, it really does. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. Where it's like, how did you forget about that? That's a really important thing to pray. I'm like, I, I don't know, because it just happens. It's forgetfulness. You know, I think there's only one thing that I'm aware of in the Litany that needs to be updated. And it's because something changed in the world that has never existed. Uh, land space. Yes. The end air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do, that. I do that when we're praying it sometimes when I'm thinking about it. But when we pray for our armed forces, though, and we list everything but except space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. We have a space force now. <laughs> you know. Airspace and cyberspace. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the point, but you still see the comprehensive nature of who you're praying for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we covered this topic pretty well, at least the idea of missions, what is it, and kind of the goals and struggles that we kind of have been seeing, but also solutions to them. And of course, with all these things, it takes time. Yeah. And you can't, you can't rush it. Rome wasn't built in a day. No. <laughs> Neither was the Anglican Communion. And uh, just mm -hmm. keep, keep the whole thing in prayer. Absolutely. I would ask if we if we had questions, but obviously we we literally just did it up. We or you're, well, it'll be it'll be posted by the time I get it out there. So okay, so no questions this week. I don't think because we just did them. None else, but no, nothing else. But I think that's going to be it for the day uh, for this episode. Uh, again, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam, and I'm Daryl, and we will talk to you later. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>